Welcome to the very first episode of The Fanatical Futurist. I'm your host, Andy Rowe, and with me is my co-host, Futurist Matt Griffin. How are you, mate? Hey, doing very, very well. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Well, assuming that you have listened to the trailer of who we are and what this podcast is about, um, if not, you can go and check out the 311institute.com to find out who Matt is, what he does, the global leaders that he advises, and why he's so well-respected around the world. But Matt... Give us an idea of what it is that a futurist does. It's sort of one of those areas that you know people actually look at and think, I'm going to go and have a look at the future. I'm going to try and figure out what the possible, plausible and probable and preposterous futures are actually going to look like. And I'm going to go to university. I'm going to take an exam and I'm going to have a shiny PhD basically on my wall. That's it. It doesn't really work like that. I mean, you've got organizations like the Association of Professional Futurists that you can sort of go through and then you sort of get a nice little certificate and everything else. But in my estimation, you know, when we're talking about futures and future stuff, I see it's such a broad topic that there's no single qualification that could actually qualify you to become a futurist. When we talk about who you are and who you work with and who you advise, who are your main clients? All right. So so my clients include royalty. I've been doing that for around four or five years. One of the first royal members of the royal family that I met was actually Prince Philip. It was when we we're having conversations about the future of aviation. He was sitting on the same table as I because he was actually the patron of the charity that we were talking at. And uh, at the end of the conversation about the future of avi- aviation, he leaned over and went, I do like drones, which was well, I thought was nice. I say, and showed he actually had the thing, his finger on the pulse. So that was a really nice thing. However, sort of yeah, more recently, I've been advising the Crown Prince of the UAE as well as his council. So that's sort of been very exciting. So we've been having conversations about the metaverse, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, Web three, tokenization, all these kinds of different things, and their impact basically on really the Middle East, but you know on wider society. HRH just ended up opening up Meta's new offices in Dubai in Internet City. That's it. So that was sort of nice to see. Outside of that, I deal with around four to five prime ministers, although they typically tend to change all the time. So that's not necessarily something to be proud of because, you know, you start making a difference at that kind of level. And then three weeks later, you find the likes of Theresa May is actually out, Boris Johnson (laughs) in, and you've got to start all over again. So typically I work with all G20 ministers in terms of the countries, go and have a look at the G20 list. Those are the ones basically that I actually work with. For example, recently been working with the United States government basically on their $1 trillion infrastructure plan. So we're developing the future of transportation for a variety of different states, including the likes of California, which is kind of an odd conversation to have because we talk about supersonic trains We talk about rockets that can go from coast to coast, so intercontinental rockets like the ones that we see with SpaceX that uh, will travel at about Mach 25, that's it, and hopefully not fry everyone's brains, basically, as you transit from the west coast of the USA to wherever it is that you're going. Maybe you're going basically to uh, Abu Dhabi or something like that. In addition to that, you know, so the, the, the things that listeners are actually using right now to listen to this podcast, the gadgets, the devices, basically the communications networks that they're actually using. I advise the vast majority of those organizations. So organizations like T-Mobile, Samsung, Huawei. So Samsung and Huawei, we actually look 50 years out at the future of gadgets, devices, communications, and everything else. And what we then typically do is we then sort of zero in on a couple of topics. So for example, some of the things that we're actually interested in is the future of energy. Now, the reason why they're sort of interested in the future of energy is because when you go out to different uh, individuals around the world and you ask them, what do you want in your next smartphone? The top answer 
in almost every single geography is longer battery life. Yeah, longer battery. So painful. Like you just get a you get a new phone and you have to charge it up every day. Yeah, well, absolutely. Now, when we sort of did a second survey for some of the, 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 the other things that we've sort of been doing with Samsung, Samsung said, right, okay, when we actually talk about lifestyles in 2069, what are the sort of things that would actually excite you most? Now, one of the things that excited people the most, and the number one thing that the vast majority of people want is a robot that will do their housework for them. So we did these, uh, these initial surveys as part of an envisioning process, probably about sort of two years ago. And it says last year, Samsung unveiled the first general purpose robot. And if you haven't actually seen it, it's quite nuts. It will do your laundry, it will do your ironing, it will clear your table, it will set your table, it will serve you wine and aperitifs and all that kind of good stuff. It will load the dishwasher and all these bits and bobs. Now it's not commercially available yet, Estimated prices would be in the sort of $3,000 to $5,000 range. But by using combinations of robotics, artificial intelligence, and machine vision, you know, an organization as big as Samsung has now been able to create a robot that does actually move the bar on helping us all get rid of loathsome housework. When's that going to be available? Well, I mean, it's it works now. It's just a question of when they actually want it to be released. So I would envisage really in the next sort of year, two years, but they haven't actually announced a, a proper GA date for it yet. So we're seeing these robots become more and more human in the sense of what they can do around the house, what they can do around the workplace and just in, in general life. But at what point does it start to move the other way when it comes to humans and we start to meet in the middle a little bit as far as humans becoming more like robots you know things like synthetic dna is that something that is starting to become more prevalent our ability to create synthetic dna means that on the one hand we can create synthetic organisms that do all kinds of different things and then when we have a look at medicines we can use this same technology to turn human cells as we have already done with human liver cells into dual core biological computers now the next step of being able to turn humans into supercomputers is once we are able to turn human cells into computing devices, those biological cells can identify different biomarkers that are floating around in your bloodstream. So a biomarker that they could pick up would be the flu virus. What we actually have here is we now have a way to turn your body into a computing device that identifies when you are getting sick. It identifies what's making you sick. It's a flu virus. And then the next stage via biomanufacturing is to turn your cells into manufacturing centers that manufacture the drugs that you need to kill the flu virus. So this is a very, very early stage trend and technology, and it's called living pharmacies. So that is where we are literally able to turn you into a computing device that detects when you're getting ill and the computers within your body, the biological computers within your body, then figure out the best treatments to build, build and create and fabricate. Isn't that what your body's trying to do anyway? Absolutely, except now it's on steroids. Right. So this is sort of where we then start having conversations that take us a little bit closer to things like the singularity, humanity 2.0. 
you know, this is where we start ending up in ethical questions of if you are able to use genetic engineering technologies like CRISPR to perform in vivo genetic engineering that turns you into a biological supercomputer, are you actually a human? With all this technology saving lives, what's going to be able to kill us in the future? I already know. It's death. Jeff Bezos also actually knows this, which is why he created the Altus Institute. And the Altus Institute is a multi-billion dollar initiative to try to cure death. When we start having a look at what can kill us in the future, you know, this is where we're having conversations about the obvious, you know, rogue artificial intelligences. And we've got some artificial intelligences called one's called Mayhem. It's embedded into the Pentagon's most critical mission critical systems. It's a semi-autonomous robo-hacker that identifies that someone's trying to hack it. And then it identifies proof of vulnerabilities within the Pentagon's mission critical code and then tries to fix them and all that kind of stuff. So that's a whole conversation about a sort of like a Skynet kind of future. So that's going to kill us. Yeah. We already see artificial intelligences from the likes of Google, OpenAI, Baidu, Mm. Meta, that are already evolving spontaneously in some of them. One of my favorite uh, artificial intelligence is actually from Uber. He'd never have thought basically would actually create an interesting artificial intelligence other than something that drives a car. But Uber created something called an open-ended artificial intelligence, and it creates its own problems, but then it also solves its own problems. So you Mm. can imagine putting that kind of open-ended artificial intelligence and giving it the task of trying to crack a system. There's a Pentagon system, go and try and crack it. And it tries a load of different ways to crack into the system. Doesn't work. You know, it then tries to find solutions to that particular problem. And it just keeps going at digital speed until it actually gets into the Pentagon system and then goes off and launches a a nuke or something like that. So that's always a fun one. Let's break it down. So we're looking at where where's Bezos and his cronies? Where are they at at the moment with it? Where are they going? What's it going to be? What's it going to look like in 10 years? What's it going to look like in 50 years? Let's start from today. Are we, are we any closer to solving the problem of death? So, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a very broad question. So we are a little bit closer than we were, you know, but when we actually have a look at how close we actually are, you know, we are tiptoeing towards basically the end state and everything else. Now, there are a couple of different ways that we are already able to, shall we say, overcome death. In India, for example, the Indian government a couple of years ago actually decided to pass regulations that would actually allow people to try to resuscitate dead people. So that's kind of a resurrection-like technology, and that's simply where sort of bringing them back from the literal dead. We've got different research labs around the world working on things like suspended animation. We've got others basically working on things like cryogenics. Um, so, for example, there was a, a teenager in the UK again a couple of years ago who had terminal grade four cancer. And she took the decision to cryogenically freeze herself. And in order to do that, she actually had, because she was a minor, they had to go and petition the UK government. They had to go through the courts and everything else. And eventually the courts agreed that she could actually cryogenically sort of freeze herself. So she's frozen. Yeah, literally frozen with the hope. A little bit like the, what was it, Demolition Man? Demolition Man, yeah, with Sly Stallone and Wesley Snipes. Exactly. And Wesley yeah. Snipes goes, where am I? You know, and they go, <laughs> you are in the future. So we've got those ways. Now, the other ways, basically, that we can actually try to cheat death. On the one hand, basically, I can create a digital clone of myself. We've got five Fortune 100 CEOs at the moment who are working with organizations over in the US 
who kind of sell themselves basically as immortalizing you in digital human form. It's happening now. Yeah. So that's already happening now. Now, the idea of that basically is that those Fortune 100 CEOs are alive in digital form. You know, you can talk to them. It will use their natural language. It has their experiences. It's got their mannerisms. It's all that sort of stuff. So that's essentially a massive data upload to an artificial intelligence that then recreates you as a digital human. So that's where, you know, we have grandkids, for example, that can sort of go, yeah, granddad, in your day, you know, what what was it like and what did you do? And in this kind of situation, you know, what would you have actually done? That's the key though, isn't it? Because like with that, if you're creating a digital thing of a replica of yourself, a lot of a lot of your personality or consciousness is also built around your memories, isn't it? So you're going to have yeah. to upload all the memories so that that person if you're talking about recreating yourself yeah if you wanted to recreate them a hundred percent authentically you'd have to have everything yeah but you know when you have a look at the amount of information that's out there today on us you know when I mean, you can take one minute of my audio from a one of my youtube channels and you can recreate my voice you know facebook have done that with bill gates you know and uh, you can go and listen to that and all that kind of stuff so that's kind mm. of nutty so We've got a lot of different synthetic media tools that we can use today to recreate your likeness, your voice, your mannerisms, your accents, your emotions and all this sort of stuff. But we've obviously ultimately got to stick all this together to create something that's authentic looking. And we're seeing that with Samsung Neon. So they're digital humans, soul machines as well, as well as a couple of others. Now, the other way basically that we can immortalize ourselves at the minute is in virtual reality avatar form. And there was a lady in South Korea whose daughter died and she and a technology company bought the daughter back in virtual reality. And the mom ended up going into virtual reality and being able to engage and have conversations with her dead daughter. You know, so when we look at what we have today, we are increasingly able to kind of immortalize ourselves in a digital format. Mm. whether it's vr whether it's digital humans and all that kind of stuff however when it comes to really trying to bring you back to life or just helping you not die there was a gentleman basically in iceland who died 200 years ago and a bunch of uh, researchers in iceland managed to recombine his genome i was going to say if you were going to tell me they resuscitated him that would have been extraordinary that's it not much of him left to resuscitate but what they did is they recompiled his genome now, we already know that we are increasingly edging towards the point where we can put a synthetic genome into an egg and actually yeah, clone a human. It's still really a decade plus off. But we've also got the development of a neuroprosthetic. Now, neuroprosthetic is really supposed to be used for Alzheimer's patients. But what's interesting about this particular neuroprosthetic, it was created again a couple of years ago. It's able to convert biological brain waves or neuron signals into digital format. Now, if you can convert a biological signal into a digital signal, you can then store that digital signal because that is digital data. So even though that particular neuroprosthetic boosts the memory of Alzheimer's patients by 35%, it's the very, very first example that I've seen of a device that could, well, that actually does store human memories which then means that you could have a digital device basically stuck in your head, recording all of your memories and then uploading those to the cloud. You could use that technology to upload your brain or your thoughts to 
the Icelander who died 200 years ago that you just cloned. Oh, I see. Exactly. So, you know, so you argue basically he's not going to be him and everything else. But nevertheless, you know, when you have a look at the development of a lot of these different technologies, we're getting closer just on that front. But then sort of stripping it all back in terms of, you know, for us regular people who may or may not want to die or just don't want to die just yet, they reckon that by so the, the healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry and all that sort of stuff reckon that by the year 2028, we will reach something that we call escape velocity. Now, escape velocity is the point in time where we have enough significant revolutionary medical breakthroughs to extend your life by more than a year for every year that you've lived. So these kinds of technologies at the moment are things like being able to 3D bioprint human organs. So we had a Israeli research group that managed to 3D bioprint a beating human heart. And the way they did that is they took pluripotent stem cells from a patient, they used hydrogels and they used bio inks and all these kinds of different things. And you can, again, watch the videos and you can look at the peer review research and everything else, but they created a miniature beating human heart. Now, in about 10 years time, they reckon that that will actually be full size, bearing in mind that, again, five years ago, you couldn't have done that. So we've got a variety of different life extension technologies actually coming through. We've got Aubrey de Grey works basically on some life extension technologies they reckon that one of the reasons basically why we age is because our cells get plaque and certain parts of our, our genome and DNA basically just get turned off, which then means that we are increasingly unable to repair the damage to our bodies. We've got interesting advances in regenerative medicine. So we were able to take what we call a silk bioreactor, which has a progesterone cocktail and they used this on a three-toed clawed frog, something it was a bit of an odd frog. This frog used to have the ability to regenerate different parts of its body, but those were turned off. And actually Harvard, through the use of tiger worms, also found basically that the genes needed for humans to regenerate different parts of our body, a little bit like starfish and zebrafish and salamanders. It's like when you... Uh, if you tread on a lizard's tail, it'll drop off and then it regrows and all that kind of stuff. It's a bit like how we cut it here. No, so, yes. Um, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think the scientists would argue that, frankly. <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah. But what we have is by using a progesterone cocktail that was put into a silk bioreactor, and a bioreactor is something that we actually use to produce clean meat, ironically. It sort of grows cells in a, in a relatively interesting way. It's actually changed. It's set to change agriculture. Um, so it shows how interrelated all these different uh, innovations and technologies can be, particularly across, as we look across sector. It actually regrew the frog's leg. Wow. And then in addition to that, you know, when we have a look at people with diabetes, you know, inevitably you'll have sores on your feet and everything else. We've managed to use sort of similar cocktails, basically in bandages that then regrow or repair wounds much, much faster than than used to be possible. Wow. So when we have a look at regenerative medicine, increasingly there are some interesting advances there. Then we've got artificial intelligence. So for example, with artificial intelligence, we've got Google who are trying to create what they call a baseline human to try to figure out if you were a perfect human and you had no flaws, no illnesses, no diseases, nothing like that, what would your body look like at the cellular level? So they're also creating something called the, the human cell atlas, which is essentially Google Maps, but for the human body. 
what we're increasingly able to do with artificial intelligence basically is say, well, this is what good should look like from a physiological perspective. And the fact that we see these deviations within your body, you know, for example, plaque buildup on the arterial walls of your heart, a slightly dodgy knee, you know, a growing blood clot basically in a different part of your body, you know, via PET scans, MRI scans, x-rays and all these kinds of other things. These AIs are increasingly able to say so for people like you who've got these symptoms, you know, life expectancy is 10 years and the treatment would then be this. I mean, IBM sort of found creating these artificial intelligences that are able to diagnose particular diseases and then find cures and treat them or recommend treatments really difficult when they sort of created IBM Watson and then they sort of wound the health unit down a little while ago. But when you actually have a look at different advances in artificial intelligence-based healthcare, there are some staggering things coming through. We've also got things like the use of virtual reality basically to improve patient outcomes when it comes to cancer surgeries, because increasingly surgeons can actually use augmented reality or virtual reality. They can fly through, the, literally virtually fly through the scans of a brain tumor, for example, or a, a sort of you know, breast tumor or whatever it happened to be. And then they can figure out the best way to actually extract it. We've got robo surgeons coming through with the likes of Da Vinci. We've got autonomous robot surgeons and autonomous dentists already here in China. There was a a recent fully autonomous dentist that uh, put two new teeth basically in a woman without the help of any dentist whatsoever. We've got genetic engineering. So, for example, if we have a look at technologies like CRISPR, we've already reached the point where we took a patient with Hunter's syndrome. And this patient, when you have Hunter's syndrome, there's only really two pieces of news. There's good news. You're going to die in 20 years. The bad news is you're going to die a painful death. By using genetic engineering, this Hunter's patient, which is called patient X, was put into a hospital bed, given a cup of tea, put onto an intravenous drip. The intravenous drip contained a CRISPR gene editing tool with the right genes, went into his body via the bloodstream, clipped out the bad gene, clipped out the correct gene, you know, the working gene. And then half an hour later, he was able to get out of the bed and everything else and no longer has Hunter's Hunter's syndrome. Now, when you have a look at that particular sort of in vivo gene editing technology, that opens the door to curing over 6,000 currently incurable genetic diseases. We've seen, you know, on other lines, basically we've seen these same technologies being used to create cancer vaccines, HIV vaccines. We've got new mRNA HIV vaccines going through with organizations like Moderna that are now moving to human trials. When you have a look at the, the healthcare space, it's just staggering the amount of innovation that we actually see. We're not even scratching the surface. Let's move on to, because you've been doing some work with the USA government on the future of infrastructure and mobility. Tell me about that and how it, because it links into um, a tax situation. Yeah, so the big new thing is climate change. So for example, sort of saying, well, okay, look, you know, if we have a look at the future of work, where increasingly people can work from home or via teleoperations, where you can have a heart surgeon that is based, for example, in Los Angeles, who's operating on a heart, on a patient that needs a heart bypass in a hospital in New York, then that's one thing. So when we actually have a look at future of work and future of the workforce, increasingly it's kind of work from home, teleoperations, work remotely, that sort of stuff. 
when we have a look at the future of transportation and mobility itself, you know, we have supersonic trains, we've got supersonic aircraft coming back, we've got rockets, basically with the likes of SpaceX. So he's trying to, you know, so Elon Musk is trying to develop an intercontinental rocket system that will rival commercial jet tra- you know, airline travel. We've got fully autonomous vehicles, so whether those are actually cars, trucks, vans. However, you know, when we start having a look at some sort of rather interesting examples of what the future of transportation and mobility could actually look like and what it could actually do, this is where if you combine, for example, a self-driving car, which is essentially a GPU-based supercomputer on wheels, you connect it to 5G, that car can now mine cryptocurrency. Now, that means that as that car is parked in your garage, as it is driving around, it's mining cryptocurrency. And today it's only a small amount, admittedly, but as computer power increases, as you start aggregating distributed compute that is present within all these different vehicles together, you start getting something that's quite substantial from a computer power perspective. Now, where we can start doing something interesting with this is in Miami, the Miami mayor, uh, a little while ago, did a deal with a company called CityCoin. Now, CityCoin is a type of cryptocurrency. And the deal that he made with CityCoin is every time somebody in Miami mines CityCoin, CityCoin will give the city of Miami a 30% dividend on the yield. On the one hand, you sort of might think, well, sounds interesting, but kind of so what? So here's the so what. Every year, Miami spends allegedly around $400 million on infrastructure projects, education projects, welfare projects, and all these kinds of things. So far from this cryptocurrency project, this city coin project, Miami has earned over $50 million. By the end of the year, it's estimated they will have earned around $80 million, which is almost a quarter of the city's tax budget. In the case of the Miami mayor, his ambitions are this. He wants as many people and devices to mine city coin as possible, because if they can hit $400 million in revenue from the yields on this cryptocurrency, he can abolish all taxes for everybody that lives in Miami. This trend, for anyone that sort of is interested in it, it's called the crypto city trend. And New York have also kind of got hold of this trend. Los Angeles are kind of snipping around the trend as well. Even sort of a lot of, even some of the governments that I talk to basically in the Middle East are now starting to snip around this trend. But the simple fact that if you're able to go to a government and say, hey, how would you like to abolish all the taxes on your citizens? How many governments are genuinely going to turn around and go, no? Stock pick of the week. Let's let's do something short and sharp here. Give us give us your thoughts on. I mean, this isn't this isn't investment advice. If you listen to this, this is not. Do not go out and spend your life savings. This is just an opinion of a man who happens to be on a podcast. So my stock pick is kind of always been my stock pick, but is is Amazon. And the reason for that is actually when you have a look at Jeff Bezos, on the one hand, he takes a long term view. So he's one of the very few people that went to Wall Street and said, don't expect me to make any money for seven years because I'm going to be reinvesting it all in a business. But when we do start making profit, you know, we're going to make you rich. And Wall Street actually famously waited as well. He's also an individual that believes that every single day is day one, which is kind of that startup mentality. 
he's also looking for big problems to solve or Amazon looking for big problems to solve, big markets to solve. Amazon at a fundamental level is a multi-sided platform that is increasingly selling you more and more stuff. You know, they are going to be getting into the education market. You know, if they get into the into the financial services market, there are analysts out there that believe that they'd be the US's third largest bank overnight. You know, if they manage to just get their prime members to switch, you know, let alone anything else. Amazon as an organization finely tunes every single process. They are arguably the ultimate multi-sided platform, more so really than Apple. You know, I question Apple's ability to innovate. I mean, let's have a look at the uh, some of the new phones that came out the other day. You know, uh, awesome. Apple's whole conversation uh, in itself, especially with the amount of money that they've got on their balance sheet. Amazon. Yeah, when you have a look at Amazon, I don't necessarily think the company's great and everything else, but actually when you have a look at execution, when you have a look at the multi-sided model basically that they keep executing against, it's very, very difficult to see how they are going to shrink as an organization and how they aren't going to dominate as an organization. I'm always being asked by sort of, yeah, CXOs and boards, but how do we compete against Amazon, you know, and Fatbag and all those others, you know, so Facebook, Apple, Tennyson, mm. whoever you want to sort of stick in the Fatbag collective. All right, well, let's finish things off now with the utopia dystopia section. Just give us a scenario that's utopia and give us a different scenario. It could be for a completely different thing for dystopia. Where, where, is, where is the world heading? So when we actually have a look at utopia, there's actually a lot to be, to be happy about. So again, one of my other big bugbears is that a lot of the news feeds that we are fed, in fact, almost all of the news that we're actually fed is negative. Okay, so... Yeah, where's the happy news? You know, we're always told, for example, that everyone's going to war, basically, and everyone sucks, you know, and some people have been murdered and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's not really happy news. So when we have a look at things like happy news in terms of utopia, we have the technology today, right here, right now. You can go and Google it. You can go and have a look at the videos. You can go and eat it and do all sorts of things with it. We have the technology today to solve global famine. You take a cell from a chicken, you put it into something called a bioreactor, and as if by magic, you end up with a chicken nugget. We have the technology to feed the entire planet without the need for actual animals. Plus, you don't have to eat bugs, and you don't have to have an exclusively plant-based diet. Because we have the technology to solve agriculture, I can also solve global water shortages as well. And when we have a look at trying to solve future water wars, we now have 3D printed devices that let us literally draw 500 litres of pure fresh water out of the atmosphere every day. And those will just continue to scale and scale and scale. So you could put one of those on your roof, one of those on your neighbor's roof, and you could disconnect yourself from the water mains. And then you just use a grey water recycling system and off you go. No water bill. Tim's water. See you later. So, I mean, those are sort of bigger conversations in themselves. So I do a lot of work with the United Nations. And, you know, we actually have a lot of the technologies, innovations and solutions that we need to solve, should we say, very cautiously climate change. You know, we can reduce climate emissions by 70 percent. We've got that tech now. However, it's going to cost about 92 trillion dollars to actually deploy renewables and help us get to that sort of, you know, net zero by 2050. So, you know, when you have a look at good news, one of the things I tried to do is actually surface the good news. You know, like we were talking earlier about Miami, you know, you want a future basically where you don't actually have to pay any tax because people are just using their cars to mine crypto, you know, city coin cryptocurrency. You know, you're welcome. When we look at dystopia, though, 
fundamentally, as a society, we need to be able to trust one another. We're all social animals and social beings. So massive bugbear of mine basically is yeah, psyops, information warfare, disinformation, deep fakes, yeah, misinformation and all these kinds of different things that increasingly the large tech platforms and governments are not only unable to solve, but they don't actually see what's coming. So there was an organization that I was presenting to in Romania and the person in front of me basically was actually the person who was advising the European Union on the future of deep fakes and synthetic content. And I was quite amused basically when actually I saw my own content on his screen. But then I was even more amused very, because my con- the content that he was actually showing everybody was actually about a year and a half old. Um, And then I actually showed them what the future really looked like. So, yeah, when we talk about the government's view of the future, it's generally way behind where it needs to be. So on the one hand, from a dystopian perspective, we've got disinformation, misinformation. Society is increasingly being weaponized all the time. And when I say society, people are increasingly being weaponized all the time because different authoritarian states are using these technologies, tools and techniques to subtly change all of our behaviors, our opinions and everything else. You know, quite frankly, stop it. However, you know, when we start talking about other sort of dystopian futures, there was this 1984 uh, George Orwell piece. China, it's not necessarily dystopian, but it's a bit, you know, it, it could sort of go that way. You know, China is its own political system anyway, you know, and we have to actually realize that and really we should respect it, whether or not we actually agree with it. So China, a little while ago, rolled out something called the social credit scoring system. It's a ranking system for citizens. So the better behaved you are, the higher your score. The less well behaved you are, the worse your score. Mm. Now, included in these scores are things like, are you a good CPC party member? You know, so do you agree and wholeheartedly support the reigning political system? And if you do, great. If you don't, then you get bumped. Your your score gets bumped down. But in China, all these systems are increasingly being joined up. And if you litter, if you jaywalk, basically, if you are a criminal, if you don't pay your bills on time, if you are mean to your neighbor, if you don't agree with the ruling party's policies, if you are an activist, et cetera, et cetera, have your own voice or whatever it happens to be, as your score decreases, you start getting banned from different public services like high-speed transport, like transport itself like education. You also get banned from things like high-speed internet, financial services, you know, and so on and so forth. So when we talk about dystopian futures, when people sort of say to me, you know, what's the most important thing that we as individuals can actually do? One of my answers is elect the right leaders because the technology that we have today is so powerful. You think you live in a surveillance state where everyone watches your online moves? I can show you the tech that's coming through that will let them monitor all of your offline activities as well. And we're not just talking CCTV. I'm talking about putting artificial intelligence in your Wi-Fi router and your Wi-Fi router gets turned into a millimeter wave sort of sonar-like, radar-like device that can not only analyze your health and emotions, but figure out where you are in your house and all that kind of stuff. So when we talk about online and offline privacy, that's all increasingly a whole thing of the past. Um, Again, conversation for another time. Good thing we've got another podcast coming out after this one. (laughs) My, My point is this. If you elect leaders who embrace technology, but then use it for dystopian purposes to try to rein your freedoms in, your voices in, your ability to do things in, then you end up in this dystopian world. 
let's finish this off. Let's do a little section. This is going to be very concise, Matthew, very concise on what is the news that we should be looking out for or aware of that is here right now that will blow people's minds. Yeah, so in terms of news to look out for, basically that uh, will sort of blow people's minds, all technology is a blank slate. We can use it for good and we can use it for bad. So uh, if we have a look at bioreactors, that bioreactors are this technology I mentioned before, where you can take the cell from an animal, can be any animal, can be a zebra, a panda, a peacock, a cow, and then you can create beef burgers, chicken nuggets, and all that kind of stuff, which you can buy from shops in Singapore, from KFC, because they're doing this program as well, and all that kind of stuff. So what we have is the bioreactor is a good technology because at a global level, it will help us solve global famine and it will help us feed protein to the growing middle classes. Let's put a twist on that. So around six months ago, and you can sort of watch out for more of these kinds of things coming out, uh, a company called Our Boros decided that they would actually use a bioreactor to create their own burgers. But the twist, they took human cells and oh, put God. human oh. cells into a bioreactor and literally created a human burger. Now, on the one hand, this is a it was a weird ethical statement that yeah. they were actually trying to make about the technology. But now from a future perspective, and I'm going to leave you here, now imagine never ever having to go hungry because what you've done is you've taken cells from your own body, put them into a bioreactor, and you've now created a human beef burger that you eat. You're now literally eating yourself and keeping yourself alive because you are eating yourself. If that's not a paradox, and if that's not a weird use of technology, then I don't know what is. There you go. What a way to finish. That's something to think about until the next episode. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Fanatical Futurist. Let us know what you think in the reviews, and we'll be back again next week.